0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4 Proverbs chapter 4 It's been a while since we were back in Proverbs But I've enjoyed studying this book again this week And I hope that you too are eager to get back into this book of wisdom that God has given to us Tonight we're going to look at a topic that's been a favorite theme of poets and songwriters for all of time From Shakespeare to Tennyson Bruce Springsteen to Billy Ray Cyrus. It's a subject that is complex and yet simple. It is determinative and yet easily influenced. It's shadowy and yet crystal clear. We're going to talk about the heart. The heart. The heart is central to who we are. In fact, we could say, in a manner of speaking, that by looking at our hearts, we'll be looking at ourselves as God sees us we we'll be looking at our hearts tonight specifically how we should keep them one commentator says speaking of the importance of this topic that there is no one single action that will more directly affect the outcome and quality of your life than keeping your heart well keeping our hearts is hugely important for us now and for our future and so to that end let's read Proverbs chapter 4 I'll read verses 20 through 23, and we'll spend our evening looking at verse 23. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are to those who find them life and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life let's pray holy father we pray that we would rightly know our hearts in light of what your word says but even more than that that we would see Christ speaking to our hearts see the very heart of Christ himself as he deals with his people cutting them right to the heart and healing them where they need healing most in the heart I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. My aim tonight is quite modest. I'd like to look at what the Bible says about our hearts and then look at what we should do about it. And so our text begins with what on the surface appears to be a simple idea. Take care of your heart. Right? But what does he mean by that? The author is obviously not commending the virtues of careful diet and exercise so that we can prolong the life of the cardiac muscle in our chest. As good as that might be. Now when he talks about our heart, he's talking about our inner life. Our inner faculties, our mind, our will, our feelings, things like that. In turn, reflects the fullness of all of our immaterial being. And it's, in a real sense, the real you. And so what does he tell us to do with our hearts? Well, God tells us, guard your hearts. Keep your hearts. Watch over your heart, we could translate The language is picturing a guard at his post, a sentinel, a watchman who is patrolling along the walls of a fortress at night. The author intensifies this picture by commanding us to keep our hearts with diligence. We're to be active, intentional. And if that wasn't enough, he ramps it up even further. Guard your heart with all diligence. It's as if he's saying to us, "The the heart is to be guarded above everything else. It's to be protected as supremely important, your most valuable possession. It's more important than your wealth, property, fame, honor, status, reputation, even your health. The heart is key, as we will see throughout tonight. To why is this heart to be kept with such diligence? Well, the verse tells us, because from it flow the springs of life. The heart is a fountain, and the rest of our life flows. Flows downstream from it. See, our heart starts, and then the mind, the will, the memory, our desires, our feelings, our emotions, all those things cascade from it. Everything flows from the heart. The NIV translates it, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Peterson paraphrases it this way. He says, keep vigilant, watch over your heart that's where life starts. I think he's on to something. Jesus teaches us a similar teaching in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart. That's where the mouth speaks. Or in Mark 7, Jesus says, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of him defile him. He says, from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. You hear how these actions first defile a man from within? It's from the heart that everything starts. The actions are just the downstream part of it. All of these things come from within, Jesus says, and they defile a person. You See, it's what's inside that inevitably comes out. Just like water always flows downhill. To use another analogy from Jesus, we could say that whatever is in the root, that is the heart, will necessarily show itself in the fruit. If a person has a bad root, he will produce bad fruit. If a person has a good root, a good heart, then he will produce good fruit. So we see it in discussing the heart how important it is in our life. If our heart is bad, then we will necessarily produce bad fruit. What else does the Bible say about our hearts? It says quite a lot, actually. We're called to love God with all of our heart. The Hebrews were commanded in Deuteronomy 10 to put off their stubbornness, to love God, and to circumcise the foreskins of their heart. Indeed, Adam in the garden was expected to love God with all of his heart. But did he do it? Did the Hebrews do it? Do we do it? An honest assessment of ourselves leads us to conclude that we don't. We don't love God with all of our hearts. In fact, the Bible says that by nature, we are haters of God. We're not slightly misinformed. We're not slightly off the mark. We're diametrically opposed to what we ought to be. We love the darkness. We hate the light. We choose to be selfish and bitter, to be resentful and to revile, to judge and to criticize. In fact, so far from having hearts that we've circumcised to God that are pumping with vibrant, joyful love for God, we're actually described as having hearts of stone. We're not bad principally because we have poor choices or we make unwise decisions or we have misinformed consciences. We're bad. We act badly because we have bad hearts. We're all born with a spiritual congenital heart defect. And we can't do anything ourselves to remedy it. We can't study enough scripture or give away enough money or say enough prayers to repair our hearts. We need a new heart. We need a spiritual cardiac transplant. But praise be to God that that is exactly what God has promised to us in the new covenant. He promises in Ezekiel 11, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. God promises a time to come where he would do what his people could never do. He would circumcise their hearts, even though they never could nor would. He would replace their hard, cold hearts of stone with warm, beating hearts of flesh. He would grant them the grace of renewal, of revival, of life again. This is what Jesus is talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus wants Jesus to explain how a man can be right in the kingdom of god and jesus says that a man can't even enter into the kingdom unless he's born again unless he's born of the spirit the language is different but what he's talking about is the same reality as ezekiel 11 and deuteronomy 10 to have a circumcised heart to have a heart of flesh replaced by to replace a heart of stone to be born again this is descriptive language looking at regeneration Charles Wesley described this in the third verse of And Can It Be, his famous hymn. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, but thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke and the dungeon was flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free." I rose, went forth, and followed thee. How can a man who is born in enmity with God be made to embrace and love that same God? The answer is only through an act of that God himself. Just like a leopard cannot change his own spot, so too is a man powerless to change his very nature. That's why God in his mercy has to do it. Have you considered this part of the good news? God's gift of regenerating grace, whereby he grants us new hearts. God, in his great love, effectually calls his people. He reaches down to them in the lowest depths of their sin and depravity, and he unites them to Christ and thereby grants them the gift of faith. And he renews the inner man. We are complete beneficiaries of God's recreating grace. See, the same God who spoke the cosmos into existence in Genesis 1 speaks, and you are recreated a new man. That's good news. Believer, do you often consider your new birth? Do you thank God often for the gift of life that was given to you when you received a new heart? We should often linger upon this work of God in giving us new hearts, new hearts that are inclined towards him. And to those who have not yet tasted of this grace, who don't quite understand all this talk of new birth, of new heart, of regeneration, of grace, then I encourage you to look to the Jesus described in the pages of scripture. Hear his words and his calls to you. He speaks Openly and often about your necessity of repenting and believing and to come to him if you are burdened And he will give you his rest and to see that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world You see the doctrine of regeneration teaches us that we can never clean up our hearts enough We can't retrain our hearts into Reformation as if we had just picked up a few bad habits and we have to put those off We can't rewire our hearts with enough new education and new training. We can't make our hearts repentant through acts of penance, and we can't lift our hearts high enough through thinking good and positive thoughts and having good feelings. Regeneration drives us to our knees to call out to God and to pray to Him, act, save me, God. If you are without Christ, then... You must close with him this very night. Cry out to him to send his Holy Spirit to grant you new life through a new heart. Do not rest until you have made yourself right with God. There is no matter more serious and no problem more urgent in your life. Your heart must be made right for from it flow the very springs of life. This is my first point in surveying the idea of heart in Scripture. And now I'd like to introduce a word picture that will help us as we go throughout the rest of the sermon, an illustration that I believe will be helpful. And that illustration is the heart as a reservoir. The heart as a reservoir. And this is not a novel illustration to me. Multiple people have used it in church history. Puritan John Flavel wrote a whole treatise called Keeping the Heart, which is wonderful. I commend it to you. Charles Spurgeon used this illustration as well. He probably got it from Playbook. Much of what I say is built upon and expanded from this theme that's drawn from them. So if you're not familiar with what a reservoir is, imagine a gigantic, often man-made body of water that through a series of pumps and pipes is able to supply water to buildings and houses. We have water towers in our area that serve a similar function. The reservoir, like the heart, is upstream and the various connections and valves and pipes and pumps are downstream, and eventually it leads its way to your faucet. And I'll use this illustration to try and picture the connections and the problems of the heart. The heart is upstream, and the will, the mind, the desires, the actions, those are all downstream. And so by way of example, as I mentioned above, our heart is naturally sinful, Born depraved, it's misshapen, it's curved, it's wicked. That's like our reservoir being full of poison. It doesn't matter what kind of pipes and valves and computers and faucets you have downstream, if you have poison in the reservoir, you will have problems downstream. It's just like what Jesus said if you have a bad root, you're going to have bad fruit. And so going back to our text in Proverbs, we're called to keep our heart, to guard our heart. And some people try and call for change in outward behavior without getting to the root of the problem. For example, they say if we just educate them better, then their behavior will improve. If we just teach them better, we correct his misthinking. If we show him the poor logic of his decisions, then a man will see the errors of his ways and he will change. That's not sufficient, as we've already addressed. That's like putting better control valves on our reservoir, but not addressing the poison in the reservoir. Doesn't matter what kind of valves you have. Doesn't matter what kind of re education, rehabilitation, retraining you might give a man if his heart is full of poison, then whatever is downstream will inevitably be poisonous. Mental reformation will never be enough to repair a faulty heart. Similarly, men may say that we can change a man's poor behavior by redirecting his activities, by giving him new principles upon which to act. We need to inspire him, give him new goals, give him nobler aims and ambitions. Then he will change. That doesn't solve the heart of the issue either. It's like replacing all of the pipes below the reservoir with shiny new pipes, but not addressing the poison in the tank. Fresh conduits make no difference if the fountain itself is corrupted. Another faulty method of trying to change a man. Certain men holding to poor theologies would concern themselves with the faculty of the will. The method of choosing God. They say if the will could be conquered, if a man would just choose God, if we just convinced him to use his will, then all else would follow But that's a wrong idea as well. The heart is a reservoir and all else is downstream from that, including the will. And trying to get the will in line is like installing a more powerful pump under the reservoir. Yes, we want to use the will. Yes, we want the will to be informed by Scripture. But if there's still poison in the reservoir, it doesn't matter how powerful your new pump is. You're still pumping poison. These, ideologies, these uh, theologies that focus on bending the will of man without addressing the heart are insufficient. So the biblical doctrine of regeneration corrects all these wrong methods of trying to change a man's behavior. By changing the heart through regeneration, God is removing the poison from the reservoir. And he allows for the proper function of all the pipes and pumps and faucets downstream. And so back to our text We're called to keep our hearts We're called to guard our hearts And you might be thinking from what I've said thus far That heart work Seems to be God's work And if God is the one who has to change our hearts Then why am I called to be the one to keep it? We don't have time to fully explain The biblical understanding of how God's actions And our responsibilities are compatible in this life But I will note a couple of places that the Bible assumes both to be true. Both God must act and we are called to act. Both things are true. For example, Philippians 2, Paul says that we're called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And then he immediately follows that with, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. We are called to work out our salvation. God is working in us his salvation. Both things are true. At the end of the book of Jude, we read, You beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. An imperative. You must keep yourself in the love of God. A couple verses later, now to him who is able to keep you, we are to keep ourselves. And God keeps us Both things are true Scripture often places The sovereign and mighty work of God And the responsibility We have to act side by side Therefore even though God must work In our hearts we are commanded Also to work our hearts Thus in light of that Let's begin to look at some ways That we should keep our hearts In what manner, in what condition should we maintain our hearts? Well, we should first keep our hearts full. We should keep our hearts full. You see, however crystal clean the water may be in our reservoir, we won't be able to have full effectiveness and reach the faucets of our actions if our reservoir is lacking. An empty reservoir will produce empty pipes and ultimately dry faucets. If you use the other analogy, a dry root will produce a tree that withers and bears no fruit. Surely you know people in this life who are like this. To use the language of Revelation 3, those people are tepid. They're lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. They're not hot enough for soaking They're not cold enough to be refreshing. They're useless to the kingdom of God. Their life is worthy of no imitation. They perhaps a time ago felt the warmth of Christ's love, but they have since drifted. They've grown cold. They're often content to coast until the Lord returns. And take note, I'm not necessarily talking about doctrine. These kinds of empty reservoirs can have all the right doctrine. Their pumps and their piping may be made of the finest materials and the best design, but they have no water to run through them. They've lost their first love and their heart has run dry. They have little effectiveness in the things of God. They have little interest in practical, everyday religion, and they have little impact on the kingdom of God. Perhaps you felt this way in your heart. Do you remember back to a time when your heart was more fervent in prayer? When you were more zealous for the gospel? When you were more earnest in your pursuit of holiness? Has this time away because of the coronavirus made you more holy? Or have you coasted, drifted away from Christ? Slowly drifting into a sleepy sluggishness of soul. Christian, we need to hear again of the great need to keep our hearts and to keep them full. And I know what some of you are asking how do I do that? What must I do to be full again? Well, I point us to one of many possible texts for the answer. David was praising God in Psalm 87, verse 7. He says, All my springs are in thee. If you have springs in God, then you will have sufficient water for your reservoir. Go back to the cross and remember again the love of God displayed for you at Calvary. Remember how God has poured out all of his wrath for sin upon the perfect sacrifice of his son. There is nothing left for you to earn. Nothing is lacking that you have to merit. All you have to do is go to Calvary and linger again upon the son and your reservoir will be brimming to the top. Live near to Christ and you will see that your tank will not run dry. Read again and often of his word and pray to him regularly. Sing of his grace and his mercy. Speak of his love bestowed upon you and the Holy Spirit will keep your soul as a bubbling fountain. Paul experienced this fullness of spirit. He said in 1 Timothy chapter one, Though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, I have received mercy, and the grace of the love overflowed for me. The grace of the Lord overflowed in Paul's life. Do you want that kind of grace? Do you want your heart to be brimming and bubbling, your reservoir to be overflowing? Then go back again to Jesus. See him as he is portrayed in Scripture. Remind yourself of his mercy and his Grace. Remember of your of his faithfulness in your place. And preach to yourself again of the immense gifts that are yours because your springs are found in him. And his springs are sufficient to keep you full. Keep your heart full with all diligence. Next, we must also keep our hearts pure. We must keep our hearts pure. It would be of little use to us if we had the biggest reservoirs in the world. We had the most powerful pumps. We had the smartest valves and the shiniest pipes. But if the water in the tanks were not pure, the whole system is useless. Our hearts must be kept pure. For as we've discussed earlier, if our hearts are not pure, then our lives will not be pure. And to test the purity of our water, all we must do is look at the purity of our works. Are we marked with purity and holiness in our conversations? Do we use our tongue to promote life and flourishing of others by consistently speaking the truth in love? Are we encouragers? Or do we find ourselves pumping out impurities, speaking divisive words, slandering remarks, biting comments? Or perhaps you're tempted towards crassness and coarse joking, filthy language. Those things are clearly condemned in Scripture, not merely because we use the wrong words, but because it reveals a measure of impurity remaining in our tanks. Remember, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever our sin of choice, it reveals something about our hearts. If I yell at my children because I have an idol of my own comfort in my heart. If I'm jealous of someone, it's because in, in the pride of my heart, I think I deserve something that God has not given to me. If I'm always grumbling or complaining, it's because I have deep-seated bitterness in my heart. It's not the situation that makes it happen. The situation merely reveals what's on the inside. Whatever the sin, impure water at the faucet betrays an impure source in the reservoir. And so what do I do when I discover impurities in my system? What do I do when God shows me that my heart has remaining in purity within it? That my heart has been exposed as bitter? And to answer that, we can think back to Exodus chapter 15. See, there God led his people into the desert. He led them into a situation that would reveal what was on the inside. They were parched. They were dry. They had gone three days without water. They were so excited to come to the waters of Marah, an old stream in the desert. But the water was bitter. Could you imagine how bad the water would have to be for you to have been in a desert with no water for three days and you wouldn't touch it? That's how bitter the water was. They couldn't drink it. They wouldn't drink it. It was very impure. It was so impure, it was unusable, it was worthless. But the text says that God called Moses to throw a tree into the water. And when he did, the water became sweet. It didn't just become bearable. It wasn't merely tolerable. It wasn't even just drinkable. It became sweet. God uses a tree to take impure bitterness and turn it into pure sweetness. And there is another tree in scripture that can turn bitterness into sweetness. That can turn impurity into holy purity. And that's the tree of Calvary. That's what Christ has done on the cross. If you find yourself to be impure and full of bitterness of heart, then go again to the tree of Calvary. See again how Christ died for bitter-hearted people like me and you. Look upon the Savior who bore the wrath for slanderers and gossips like us, who willingly was slain so that we might have life. His perfect purity was exchanged for our wretched impurity. His perfect holiness is given to us and our bitterness The curse for our bitterness was laid upon him. That's the sweetness that comes from the tree of Calvary. The great exchange. How do we keep our hearts pure? We do that by staying ever near the tree that can turn bitterness into sweetness and pollution into purity. We must keep our hearts pure with all diligence. The Bible has much more to say about keeping the heart, and I have much more to say, but I will have to save that for another sermon, perhaps. Um, We have business meeting to get to, and so as I close tonight, if you have heard a gospel that you do not own yourself, if you have not made it your own, then I plead with you to cry out to God to ask him to make your heart new and to grant you the gift of new life and come to him this very day. He is a willing God who is calling out to you. Turn away from the sins of this world and come to Christ who will grant you the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, as Titus says. No impurity can withstand his cleansing and no sin makes you outside of God's glorious grace. Do not delay. Come to him. And when we do, we find a sweet fountain of purifying grace. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you would help us to keep our hearts full, to keep our hearts pure. Help us to guard our hearts with all diligence, to not be pulled from one side to the other by the cares of this world, by the Fiery darts of the evil one help us to stay near to Christ, to remember his cross, that we might have life. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen.